Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Hi, everyone. My name is Nick Martin. Uh, I'm a staff writer at the New Republic, where I cover indigenous issues. I'm also a member of the Saponi tribe out of North Carolina. Um, and I'm extremely excited that everybody came out today. I know it's early. It seems like everybody's got their coffee in them. So I'm looking forward to a very lively Q&A session at the end of this. Um, we are still waiting on Alistair, but we're going to go ahead and get started. And he'll join us um, you know, in a couple minutes. I believe he's on campus now. So. Without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to my panelists. Just a quick introduction um, from the two of you. Uh, it, just a little bit about what you do and um, how you cover uh, Indian country. So yeah, start with you, Kaylin. All right. Hi, uh, I'm Kaylin Goodluck. I am a fellow at High Country News. Do I need the mic? OK. Should we just hold it? Should we hold it? If you want, sure. OK. Hi, good morning. Um, my name is Kaylin Goodluck. I'm a fellow with High Country News, and I'm on the Indigenous Affairs Desk. And so a lot of what I've been focusing on is coverage of um, hate and extremism in Indian country, um, as well as uh, hunting groups and conservation groups whose um, sometimes their values sometimes align with anti-Indian groups. Um, and so that has been my main focus uh, so far. And I'll hand it over to Anna. Is this one on? It is on. OK. <laughs> is this thing on? Um, yes, my name is Anna V. Smith. I am an assistant editor with High Country News on the Indigenous Affairs Desk. Um, I've been on the desk since 2017 when it first started. and. Um, I am non-native. I'm based in Portland, Oregon, and I mostly, well, I've covered all kinds of things because since I'm a staffer, I'm just kind of like the go-to person sometimes when it comes to writing something. But um, I especially have been covering a lot of like legal analysis, like Supreme Court cases or treaty rights um, and how those play into things in Indian country. So... Thank you guys very much for that. Um, and again, thank both of you for uh, taking time out of very busy schedules to join us today. Uh, it's much appreciated, and I'm really looking forward to kind of probing your expertise today. So the, the way we're going to kind of approach this session, we're going we're gonna to break it down into three sections. The first one is how to build sources in Indian country. The second is proper framing. And then the third is going to be avoiding stereotypes. So just to kind of kick off this initial section, I want to um, kick it to you, Anna, because, uh, yes, I know. <laughs> we're going to start with you, and then we'll move to Kaylin. Um, because I, one thing that I noticed in your high country um, news coverage uh, over the past couple years that has kind of stood out to me, opposed to maybe more national and even some local reporting, is that you do, uh, in high country, the tribal affairs desk does a good job of considering tribal nations uh, and their editorial coverage before a major story breaks, opposed to being reactive. Mm -hmm. So can you maybe take us through the process of when you're trying to, like, uh, we'll get kind of backtrack a little bit about building sources, but when you're just approaching your week, your like your month, your year in terms of your coverage uh, schedule, how do you ensure that you are placing tribal nations um, as a priority in terms mm -hmm. of 
giving their voices and their issues coverage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a little bit unique, I think, for High Country News because we do have a whole desk that's devoted to that coverage. Um, so I think as individuals, it might be a little bit harder, but this is like my day to day. So yeah. it's like I'm, I'm developing sources through just if I'm like in the area, I'll reach out to people mm -hmm. when I'm traveling. I'll, if there's something that comes up, like there's a, a court case that's brewing or something, I'll reach out to people and just kind of get like a gut check basically mm -hmm. and then go from there. Um, a lot of times, especially since I moved to Portland from living in Colorado, I, I just like reached out to a lot of the local organizations um, just to kind of hear what they thought was important. Yeah. Because I think that one thing that the Tribal Affairs, sorry, we just changed the name from Tribal Affairs to Indigenous Affairs Desk. So okay. um, the Indigenous Affairs Desk is all about is it's about reporting not about indigenous people, but for and by indigenous people. And that's like a difference in framing that's really important because it otherwise, I mean, we get pitches all the time that are very like anthropological in right. the way, and they're usually from non-natives mm -hmm. um, in the way that they're approaching the topic. And so when you, when you come at it differently from that way, then that's when you are talking to the same people, you're figuring out who else you should be talking with. Um, does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. And okay. that, and then I said, oh, uh, you know, I kind of want to like take a step back there because what you're talking about reaching out to people like that seeing for you that feels like a very normal part of the process. But I think for a lot of non-native reporters and people who aren't used to, um, you know, kind of dealing with uh, tribal nations and representatives, like how do you identify the right person to reach out to? You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. like some some tribal nations have very, you know well-established websites, some don't. Totally. Sometimes you have to make an email versus making a call versus visiting in person. Right. So can you maybe like, when we're talking about considering them in the editorial coverage, how do you know who to consider? Like when you're going through a story, how do you establish that? And I know that's like obviously specific to which story, but just in yeah. general, how do you kind of come to a conclusion of who you should be speaking to for a story? So this sounds really obvious, but like I contact the tribe. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm shocked. It sounds obvious, it right? Sounds yeah. Really obvious. <laughs> but I'm shocked by how many pitches we get from people or even people who are writing for us. And it includes information about the tribe um, or even like tribal representatives, but they haven't contacted the tribe. Um, and some tribes have PR people, some don't. When they have PR people, it's, mm -hmm. it is often a lot more straightforward because they're like, oh yeah, you just go over here and talk to this person. Right. If they don't have a PR person, then sometimes you'll end up in somebody's voicemail inbox for a long period of time. But it's, to me, it's really about like persistence and consistency. Right. And, um, you know, I've had this conversation with another reporter who's having an issue getting a hold of people, and he always contacts them for comment, and they never comment. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I'm like, you should just keep contacting them for comment because maybe eventually down the road, that'll be something that pays off because they know that you're that you're covering it consistently and that you're there, yeah. and that's really important. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and then I want to kick it over. Um, to you, Caitlin. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about when you're committing to making these inroads with these communities, like how do you, and for the, some of the best stories you see, I mean, when you're doing maybe a more, um, if you're doing a story that's just kind of a, a reactive write-up to something, it's easy to maybe get a, like a quote or comment like we were just talking about. But when you're doing stories that are a little bit more invested and require going past tribal leadership that require talking to community members, 
can you maybe speak a little bit about how you do that? How to like one offer proper context for the quotes that you're getting from these people, but also like how do you dig deeper past um, the the PR teams and actually establish inroads relationships um, with these communities and not just the the tribal governments themselves? Right. So. I first began covering Indian country in earnest probably around 2014. Um, and I kind of have the benefits of being a tribal member um, with the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara Nation up in Fort Berthold in North Dakota. Um, so I do have family members. And so I, I kind of already, as, you know, as an individual, had some built-in knowledge of who to talk to. Um, but if you're not someone like that, well, who do, you, who do you go to? And so there's always, it's always great to sort of look for a point person, someone who's very well integrated into the community, um, someone who can kind of, you know, you're, maybe you're uncomfortable talking to a representative or a tribal elder or... Um, just someone who's in, uh, you know, maybe one of their neighbors um, to, you know, hey, can you give me an introduction? I think that is probably one of the smartest and most valuable things you can have because you have someone who can uh, vouch for you. Another thing, um, my great uncle who lives in Fort Berthold was like, yeah, you want to do work in here. Well, like, you, you need permission from the tribe. Um, and what does that really mean? Um, permission from the tribe can be in the form of like, um, he wrote the uh, the tribal, um, one of the council members, the president, and was like, hey, my nephew is doing this story. Can you give him permission to do that and write him a letter? And so I had carried around this letter that said, here's the work I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it and I'm endorsed by the president. Now, it, it seems weird, and you're like, you could be, it could be a little odd to be like, hey, why should I get permission from like a tribal official to do a story? Um, and it is odd, and that's something that you're gonna have to talk with, um, with your editors and really kind of understand like, well, he's not like forcing my hand to do a sort of angle or a story or anything like that. Um, but it is something to consider, especially if you're doing um, things that are, that have to do with issues with like sacred knowledge um, or things like that. You don't want to ha end up having knowledge like that in your coverage. Um, you kind of need to have some sorts of things culturally vetted. Um, in those sorts of ways. And so, so back to the having a point person, um, you also, if you look at like, if I was looking at the coverage of MHA Nation um, and I started covering it during the Bakken oil boom, everyone quoted my great aunt, Marilyn. <laughs> the New York Times would go to her for every story and she was amazing because she was someone who was like, a historian, um, someone who kind of curated some of the museum and knew a lot about the, um, the history, past oil booms. Um, but don't just quote my great aunt Marilyn. Also, <laughs> you need to like use her as a jumping off point. Um, but and she will definitely be able to help you uh, find more sources who are also closer to the story than she may be. She just has a deep historical knowledge of it. But you need to have. Um, 
to be able to expand and diversify your sources in any country as well. I think um, that should be your main goal when you cover Indian country. Yeah, thank you. That was an excellent answer. I hope everybody took notes on that. Um, and I want to kick it back to you, Anna, because um, you know what Kalen um, was kind of talking about there was he like almost having a bit more of an established relationship prior to even choosing to be a reporter in these communities. And as a non-native reporter who does a lot of this coverage, how do you do you find um, that? there's more trepidation to talk to you specifically. I know it's probably coming from HCN with the Tribal Affairs Desk, hopefully that's, or Indigenous Affairs Desk, sorry. Um, that's probably built up a little bit more, hopefully, goodwill among the um, tribal nations. But I'm just uh, curious, like, how do you kind of, if, if there is a barrier, one, and two, how do you move past it? Um, I haven't, I haven't experienced Experience like huge barriers mm. personally. Yeah. I mean, this is only like me as like a singular reporter right Absolutely. now speaking. Um, but but I know that there probably is, mm -hmm. and probably most of that would be expressed through like not answering emails or calls. You know, yeah, like, right. Like yeah. it probably wouldn't be like an outright like confrontation or whatever. Yes. Um, but I yeah, I think I mostly deal with that kind of like what Kaylin was just talking about by having like a point person mm -hmm. and so I for the last couple cover stories that I've done um, also we because I'm non-native and just because it's good practice in general we pretty much always assign an indigenous photographer yes um, and then I have an indigenous editor and so those those other aspects I think are really important to the production and that's actually something that's going to ask you all um, how many of you are writers that are planning on report or you know producing stories I, I guess. see a show of hands raise them high okay, okay. So, so basically most. almost the entire room yeah and then like editors or okay okay couple. so mostly okay cool um, yeah because that kind of gets to um, just the idea of, of, of looking at a story with all of these different aspects and all the different people involved, I think that's something that we should be thinking about more and more. Um, because I do think that when I'm on the ground and I have an indigenous photographer with me, like I do think that makes a difference, also because it shows like our commitment to to doing it right. Yes, and, um, I, and I've talked to Graham Brewer about that before, about kind of having somebody within the community, not just like as a point person for, as a source, but as somebody that is actively contributing to the story. And that seems to be an, an important facet and something we will talk about at noon in terms of hiring indigenous staff. <laughs> so everybody get ready for that. Um, I wanna kick it down, hand the mic over and allow Alistair to introduce himself, just like a brief introduction, who you are and your, the work you do and uh, why you're on this panel. Yeah, apologies for being late. Um, I didn't know traffic was this heavy on campus. Um, but my name is Alistair Bitsoy. I'm uh, currently the communications director for the nonprofit Utah Denefbekea, but I'm also formerly a reporter for the Navajo Times, so I kind of have, I bring that experience to this conversation with both being a former journalist, but I still freelance as well, but also um, advocating for Bears Ears National Monument through um, coverage and um, through the work in the role of communications and I'm Dene, originally from Nashiri Navajo Nation, New Mexico, which is like f near the Four Corners region. And I've been in this capacity as comms director for a year and a half. So thank you. I'm glad to be here. Oh, thank you. And uh, actually, if you hold on to the mic, okay. I've got a question for you, because we're going through our section now on how to build sources in Indian country. And par part of that, we're about to transition into the proper framing. And one thing you and I were able to speak last night about was um, looking at a lot of these kind of grassroots movements and how they form, and then ultimately 
maybe co-opt isn't the right word, but they get paid attention to by national leaders, uh, people in Congress uh, or governors or whoever. And I want to talk about how do you, as somebody who's worked on both sides, both on the journalism and on the PR side of things, um, how do you ensure as a reporter and as somebody on the other side that we're, it's not getting lost where some of these movements are coming from? And that seems to be about building community sources. Um, and but that doesn't always translate into national coverage. It seems that then it's just, you know, you're kind of quoting your different represent like um, con congressional representatives and whatever uh, tribal leaders and not so much those community sources. So I wanted to ask, put it to you on how you see the current situation and what reporters can do better to um, kind of uplift those voices. So there's a lot of things reporters can do better. <laughs> um, so at Utah Dinabakea and Bears Ears, actually, I have this tool here that we created. It's a media and culture sensitivity training for um, all reporters, but not just reporters, but also um, academics. That's uh, like those in academia have um, as another worm, <laughs> kind of worms. But um, it, we created this tool in response to um, the lack of coverage of Bears Ears from a Native American perspective because people often forget the narrative around Bears Ears. It's like associated with Patagonia or it's like <coughs> it takes away um, a lot of the grassroots work that helped designate Bears Ears in the first place, which is through a cultural indigenous knowledge. And so through my experience being a reporter for the Navajo Times um, and then just freelancing here and there and then being in this role, I saw a lot of issues with coverage and a lot of issues with word, word choice. Um, and even our organizational name, Utah Denepikea, we're often considered or reported as a group or a tribe. And we're like, we're not a tribe, we're a nonprofit. So some of those factual, like factoids need to be corrected in the, in the papers that you guys all write for. Um, we also developed uh, a reporter guideline in this booklet so on base on the principle of reciprocity I know a lot of mainstream papers and uh, Nick and I talked about the subjectivity that's supposedly in your stories and so that objectivity can be can cross lines in tribal cultures or native cultures like because in Native American indigenous cultures, most of them, there's that principle of reciprocity where you give something in to get something in return. It's not just extraction. And so we wanted to emphasize at least the reporters who do cover Bears Ears topics to know like, First, Bears Ears is native-led. <laughs> second, everyone else is like a second party, and they're helping our narrative. But like the that, and it's like often forgotten that our board leaders, our youth, our elderly, are the ones who created this. Um, and it's not just Bears Ears; is Bears Ears of over thousands of human history, and it's our leader, our elders that are leading these efforts, and they're the ones who share this, hold this um, knowledge, and it's being trickled down into the organization and the work we're trying to um, amplify and connect to on what is considered public lands, and even the, and even that term public lands is kind of like, I don't like it. <laughs> I prefer the term ancestral territory over public lands. And even the word public landowner is even an issue as well. So like we do a lot of kind of education. This tool also even has, um, 
words you should use and not use. And I think that's some way you can develop sources in the community. Yeah, thank you for that. That was, that was extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I'd like to move on to our second segment um, on proper framing. And this is more kind of a, a general observation, um, but I'd be curious to know um, everybody's uh, on the panel's thoughts on this, because one thing when I see, when I'm looking specifically at national coverage, but I, I think that this can also bleed down to um, local papers as well and regional papers as well, is you know, it's something, it's very, it's almost, it's one of those obvious things like Anna was mentioning earlier. It's like about quote placement. Like where are you putting the the um, indigenous voices in your story? All right, so for instance, um, this isn't necessarily around an environmental topic, but around the Indian Child Welfare Act, a lot of stories frame it from the foster family's perspective and not from the tribal nation's perspective. And this can extend to base a lot of different subject areas. Um, and so I just wanted to kind of go down the line here. I start with Kaylin and go Anna and then Alistair. And I wanted to talk about like what you guys kind of, your analysis of national coverage of um, indigenous issues and in terms of like when these voices are um, placed in these stories and how that can affect uh, you know people who, might not have any sort of other, like this story is the first time they're hearing about this issue. And so I just kind of want to go down the line and just hear like how that has affected you in terms of how you perceive national news coverage of indigenous issues and then also um, how you feel like these institutions can do better or are doing better. So I'll just hand this off to you. It's kind of a broad question, but I just wanted to put it Um, I would say that there are certain things that, just totally aren't focused on. Going back to one of the first points that Anna made, um, we like to think that our desk is, you know, we, when we go to an indigenous community, what we report is going to be news for that community as well. It's not just going to be news for the whole nation. It's we want to we want to produce value to the uh, the community that we cover as well, um, and so I think that that is something that I've noticed when reporting on Indian country, where you know I'm also like I'm not an expert on anyone else's tribe other than my own experience, and so when I go to another tribe and I ask like, hey this this um, this whale hunt you've been trying to um, get a permit for for over a decade. Tell me about that. And they're like, we've been telling everybody about this for over a decade. Can you please just look it up in the <laughs> clips? <laughs> and so it's like, oh yeah, shit. Like, um, I can't just make everybody, you know, produce the same coverage over and over and over again. Um, and so that's kind of what I see in national coverage. Is this these types of stories that are very much regurgitated? Um, from local coverage or um, just really much foundational basic facts about the issue um, when there's there's no there's really no value to that um, and second of all I think like oh, I just lost my train of thought <laughs> um, but yeah I think that's really important um, and even as someone who is a tribal member, it is like, yeah, I have to keep reminding myself um, these types of things. I also think that it's important um, to not just focus on, um, 
I think spirituality is a huge um, stakeholder, but I also think that like there are certain dotes. I think spirituality is always sort of trumped, and just because it can be seen as a very much an exotic thing um, in when covering tribal nations. Um, or things like if you go to cover a protest, there's always drumming. A lot of the segment is going to be drumming in the backgrounds. Um, and while that's like fine, it's like, okay, well, there's always going to be drumming at a protest. Can we just get to a lot more of the issue? Um, so that's kind of what I have to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, that's a very large question. Um, I think. Uh, I'll just focus on one one aspect about framing that I noticed that really bothers me, and then I'll also focus on like things that should be done with framing instead mm. of focusing on what shouldn't be done because that, that seems easier, yeah. sort of. Because <laughs> what shouldn't be done just seems like so vast <laughs> and like overwhelming for me to answer right now. Um, so one thing about framing with stories um, and going back to what I was saying earlier about having an indigenous editor and hiring indigenous people into your newsrooms is that the framing for a story happens really early on. Like it's happening when you're developing the pitch. It's before you're on the ground and before you're talking to people in that way. Um, so that's one thing that I think should could be greatly improved on. Um, and Okay, I think I'm going to mention two things that could be greatly moved on. <laughs> so a lot of the things, a lot of time what I see in national coverage is, um, I guess, I guess the, the term is basically poverty porn, where it's talking about how high the suicide rates are, how high the sexual assault rates are, um, and, and they really focus on the trauma and the violence in these communities. Um, they don't mention the federal policy that pushed that to happen. They don't mention the beautiful things in those communities and the reason why people live there. Uh, and it's just so focused on those negative aspects that it's like, that's, that can't be all there is. Like, there's more there. So you need to explore that. You need to have these characters have motives and goals so they can be full characters um, and make these places full places, not just highlight the the vast inequities and depressing aspects of it, because um, that's not accurate. Um, and then in terms of what um, what can be done better, I think that uh, in a lot of my writing, I focus on mentioning things like nationhood and ideas of um, tribal members as citizens of a nation. I often talk about UNDRIP, which is the UN Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples, to elevate these conversations, because I think sometimes what I see in local news is um, kind of what you were saying a little bit ago, is how groups, um, like there's this not really very good understanding of like nonprofits versus tribal nations, which is like a huge difference. Um, and so, and, and they come with different political power. I mean, being Native American is, a, is also a political status. And so that's, that's when we talk about ICWA and stuff like that. Yes. That's where like a lot of the misconceptions come through. So you have judges being like, oh, it's a race-based law. It's mm -hmm. like, no, being Native American is a political status. Yes. Um, so I think I'll probably stop there. Yeah. Wait, one more thing. Sorry, that about one more thing. It'll be really quick. Okay. One thing that really bothers me is when um, a, an article says Washington's tribes or mm -hmm. Colorado's tribes. Mm -hmm. 
states, like when it comes to power, it's like federal government, tribal nations, state, county. Like they're not, like states don't own tribes. So that's just like a little yes thing that really gets me okay sorry no that was good thank you <laughs> yeah in state of in the state of utah that's what utah tries to do the to the tribes often um especially when it comes to, to this narrative around beers is but when it comes to framing i get annoyed and this is why we developed this um was when when summer I got a call from a CBS like cable news reporter saying like oh like can we come out to Bears Ears that's fine and she's like but I want you to stage something like she basically was asking us to stage like her scene and I was just kind of like annoyed with that because I was like she wanted us to have these stereotypical like um, reporting I guess stereotypes of indigenous peoples and she wanted us to like have um, the person she wanted to interview like conduct a ceremony just so she can have that as um, like background for for her story and I'm like no that's not happening so after two hours <laughs> I was like I'm done with this and I'm like I don't think you should come to Bears Ears if that's your angle to your story and I, I think framing in that way is wrong um, and so when it comes to framing, when I was reporting, I know like um, Anna talked a little bit about it, but uh, I know not all tribes have clans, but I think that's important to, it's an important biography marker in identifying who your source is and where they're from. Uh, I know the Native American publication, publications are pretty good at that. They would say like Alistair Batoy, maybe parentheses Dene. Um, parentheses in and then you would go on as like blah 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 um, so those are tips that I don't know if you guys don't do I recommend doing um, but not also clans but again like Anna and Kaylin indicated citizenship is one way and I when I used to write I always loved writing features and keeping the main my native sources on top of my lead sentence and not bury them below. And that's what I would often do and still do. And as far as framing, I guess, um, yeah, this is why we created this. And it, it, it's, it's kind of like basic information, but it's also exhausting to keep explaining and explaining and explaining. <laughs> and I'm like, sometimes I, um, I get annoyed and I just want to, sorry, be aggressive and I'm like, get it together already. Or <laughs> so that's, that's my, it's not my approach, but sometimes I think that. And um, I think framing is important because if you, and there are sources, and I also want to indicate that just because a Native American looks, to, looks a certain way or dresses the part, they're not necessarily always the best source either. Yeah, thank you. For, thank all of you for that. I know it was a broad question, uh, but you all hammered very um, individual, specific points uh, that I think are crucial. And, and I want to go back to one thing, um, and Anna, I'll start with you on this one, because one thing it, we're touching on here um, is the, just like as a statement, tribal nations are sovereign nations. And that seemed, maybe to people in this room, that might be an, an obvious state of fact. But for the majority of Americans, that understanding is very much lost, um, at least in my experience. Um, working like when I'm outside of work, when I'm just talking, just describing like what I do, people are like, they're, they're what? They're political actors? And so I want to like talk about when you're writing a story, and it's about a very specific topic. How do you go in and avoid having to give like a, an entire 
two to three paragraph history of this? Like, how do you work that kind of knowledge that should be basic understanding for all Americans that we get in K-12, but we don't? How do you work that knowledge into your stories in a way that is like smooth, that doesn't like kind of take a reader out of it in a way that's like, okay, now I'm getting a history lesson. But like, how do you make it like kind of just more of uh, like, you know, kind of integrate that knowledge smoothly? Yeah, so um, when it comes to terms like tribal sovereignty, like we just don't explain it. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> because we're like, you know, it's 2019, like let's, like everybody can Google it if they don't know. And I think like the very first story that I did on the tribal affairs desk in 2017, I think we might have said like, you know, like um, tribal sovereignty, comma, comma um, the ability to self-govern, comma, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it was like, I just don't think like, like there's so many more more complicated right. concepts to explain, and I, I I think that the term tribal sovereignty is kind of being used like more and more. I have in seen the last it, couple of years. Yeah, I've seen it definitely an, an increase in it. Um, yeah. But I'm just wondering if that extends to to readership. I mean, obviously, I think if you're picking up a high country a copy of High Country News, you probably are as a reader, you're coming in with a little bit more knowledge, yeah. um, but for readers outside of those publications at maybe just like a city or a local um, newspaper, I'm curious if that is something that um, we see as often. Um, Caleb, yeah. do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Um, not yet. Not yet? Okay, okay. <laughs> well, I would add that, like, um, I don't know. I mean, it's a balance because, like I said before, like we're and what Kaylin reiterated is that we're doing these stories for an indigenous audience. And so we don't want to take like huge chunks Mm -hmm. of explanatory exposition that we know that some people will already know. But then we also do want to bring along the non-natives who who aren't just like inherently familiar with it. So I guess I don't I can't think of like a great example, um, but. But we try as often as possible when it's just like something like tribal sovereignty. It's kind of like we're just going to let people figure it out. And then when it comes to more complex topics, um, it's just kind of about like weaving it in there or like linking out yeah. to some to something else. That like Do you think that's it. an approach that most news organizations just start to take, just like in, include it in there, get rid of like the, the history or the background and stuff like that and just kind of just... Hmm. assume that it's basic knowledge like outside of hcn do you think that would be a useful tactic that would uh, for people who didn't know that would kind of spur them to google it and to look it up um i don't know yeah do you have do you have any thoughts on that i could try to add um <laughs> yeah so with our work and i think it i feel like the, the native publications i think the audience there already has an idea of what sovereignty is or tribal sovereignty um but when it comes to the non-major audience members that's where you have to do a lot of education like 101 and when we talk bears ears we always have to add that political um status into the narrative because it's often forgotten that like oh why do we want more um why do we want tribes at the table like why do we want them that's this is the counter argument to why bears ears exist but and they're like the land already here is already federally managed by the blm and forest service so like why do we and this is the excuse me the conservative right in san juan county who is a against um this proposal led by the tribes and they often argue like well, we're already poverty, we're impoverished already, so why designate the land even more with federal like monument status? And so we, even to those, um, to that 
audience who po opposes the work we're doing in trying to elevate and empower Native voices in San Juan County, it it's a lot of like, it's creating a lot of like racial divide in that county, but it's also a lot of like, okay, we gotta strategize and figure out how to bring conversations to the table and that includes discussing sovereignty and why um, tribes, Native people have this political status. And we do a lot of it through um, the Bears Ears and the Tribal Coalition because there are elected leaders and they advocate for indigenous peoples of the region. Um, and so whereas a nonprofit, we can't also we get pushed back by our people as well because you're like you're only a nonprofit. You shouldn't be speaking on behalf of us. So that's where we kind of safely decided to use. Even in our writing, we would say tribes of the Bears Ears region, but we're like, wait, we're not um, speaking on behalf of the tribe. So we've inserted safely the use of indigenous peoples because it makes it more like the grassroots people. So that's who we're talking for, not the political leaders. And so we made that the distinction early on in our training guide to make sure like indigenous is probably the most safest word where we're not overstepping the political divisions or decision making of the, our elected leaders. Thank you for that. Um, and then just to tie back, uh, I guess, for, for Kaylin and then Anna, um, in your writing, uh, you know, one thing I think that comes up, especially around um, when you're looking at these land and environmental issues, is the, the process of tribal consultation as is laid out um, and mandated, and also um, understanding, like implementing the understanding of treaty and trust responsibilities into um, your coverage. And so one thing that I guess I would just be interested in is, you know, kind of a similar question to working in that sovereignty issue is, um, is that something that you feel like you guys do that is another thing where you, it's it's assumed knowledge, or is that something where you have to restate it uh, if it's an issue where the federal government or whatever um, government, uh, United States government uh, entity might be overstepping its bounds or ignoring tribal nations on that fact, um, like as a reminder. So just like in terms of like treaty and trust and tribal consultation, is that something you find that you have to reiterate um, to readers, or is it, again, just more assumed knowledge? Yeah, so I think, like, as journalists, it's your job to kind of cover, like, if the tribe is, you know, calling for consultation or it is the job of the federal government to come in um, and consult with the tribe, it is your job to go cover that and make sure that it, it happens um, and they follow, you know, correct procedure. Um, and if you, you know, you're going to end up explaining, you know, what it is that there, the government is is doing or is not doing in that consultation um, that you know it should give readers enough of an idea of like yeah this is a required thing um, does that yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely I think it depends on the story too because like what I really like to do is with with, with the longer stories that I write like get those the weight and importance of those things across through examples. Mm -hmm. So it's not just like a big block of exposition, but it's also about framing, right? Cause it's like when you're talking about the trust responsibility and treaty rights, I feel like I see a lot of it framed as broken promises. And it's like, those aren't promises. Like that's right. the law. I, yeah. They're, vi they're violating, like the U S is violating its own laws that's illegal yeah. <laughs> and like and so when you when you frame it like broken promises it makes it sound like oh i promise oh sorry i can't oops <laughs> yeah. and it 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 
it makes it minimizes it yeah and so kind of like cutting through the bullshit oh i'm sorry i don't know if i can this is recorded um okay great (laughs) so okay i'll say it again cutting through the bullshit to like get to the actual like like to the heart of the matter like what is really going on here well what's really going on is the u.s is breaking its own laws that it formed in like you know 1800s with this other nation um and so i think that that's Nah, I forgot the question, but <laughs> no, no, and I, I think that that's a, I think that that's an excellent point of the framing of it as promises, as like, uh, like a handshake deal or something. Like, no, right. this is something that like two party, two legal entities, two legal political entities agree to on paper and ha- is and held is should be held in perpetuity, and. I think it's important to remind people of that because like a lot like what you're what you're referencing it seems like is the broken promises report by the US Commission of Civil Rights that came out last December and while it the name might not be the best I think like when you read the report it gets into like the actual it's like, insane yeah it is it is insane and everybody's 314 pages uh, it's not quite the easiest to read at like a book but everybody here should read it because it's an incredibly important document and it follows up on a 2003 report that said the exact same thing okay. and so yeah it's um, and that's all uh, oh yeah sorry so uh, the the report itself okay so that is the broken promises and that was released December 2018 I think December 20th 2018 by the United States Commission on Civil Rights uh, if you just google that the PDF should be the top um, search result uh, download it read it read it again, and implement it in your coverage, absolutely. Um, and then, Alistair, if you wanted to um, tag off of that. Yeah, so um, at our work, we're always doing sh- um, strategy and messaging just so that non-Native audience members understand where we're coming from. And, and um, this month, it, it appears to be Indigenous consent, and I think that's important, and it resonates a lot. Um, and an example could be, like, um, did... Did America name Columbus Day Columbus Day? No. Um, did Indigenous Peoples name Indigenous Peoples Day? Yes. And that's an example of Indigenous people giving our consent on our narratives and our approval and a validation of framing when it comes to framing stories, but also just um, when it comes to the uh, idea of, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> no, just, it was mostly about tribal consultation. Yeah, tribal consultation. Yeah. Like, you got to make, as reporters, it's important to understand, to report our note, like, was indigenous consent, like, even there in those conversations? Um, not just, like, having a meeting and saying, oh, yeah, because the federal agencies definitely say, lie and say, like, they met with tribes and they considered their, that's their interpretation of indigenous, our consultation. And and that's often not, even just sending an email is considered <laughs> consultation um, from that perspective. And that's, that's wrong um, because we never gave our consent to meet. And I think that's 
maybe a concept you all can report on in your publications? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and on tagging off of that, there is a report put out by the, I want to say it was 2019, February 2019, it's by the Government Accountability Office, and it interviewed, I think it was 57 tribes and got comments from 100 um, that basically showed the tribal consultation process is being ignored across the board on all of these projects. So that's another um, useful document that everybody should look up and uh, again implement in their uh, coverage. You have something? Oh yeah, uh, it's uh, I can't remember the name of the report, but it's by the Government Accountability Office or GAO, and I want to say it was February 2019. Um, the that risk report? Yes, was that it? Is the risk report? Okay, the, the risk report uh, is what um, we're saying. So yeah. Did you have something you wanted to add? I just wanted to add that for consultation. I haven't really covered that a lot. Yeah. Like I, but when I, the, the times that I have looked at the stories there, it's just like shocking mm -hmm. how it's like, oh, there's supposed to be this whole process that's right. just not happening. Yeah. So that's and it's all not even like a, it's not even a one-off. Like it's very right. clearly it's across the board. A, a, yeah. a, a, a cross the board trend, east coast to west coast. It, really does not matter. Um, so, fun stuff. Um, let's move on. I want to... Oh. Yeah, that would be helpful. Do you, do you want to go through that? <laughs> do you want to explain the consultation? From what I know. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So we're going to just do a quick explainer on what that consul tribal consultation process actually looks like. That would be helpful. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, so kind of like what consultation typically is, is like just like a public hearing. Um, they should be just like um, when the Federal Register um, posts a new proposed rule or something, you need public comments. So it's, it's an opportunity for tribal officials and tribal members to voice their, um, I don't know, their concerns or what the, how they feel about, say, an oil pipeline. Um, the EPA has a built-in tribal consult. Every agency has a built-in uh, tribal um, consultation process. And so... You know, looking at the high-risk report, it is pretty shocking to see that, you know, they're not really following their own laws. They're doing the same BS thing where they will not adequately advertise that there's going to be a consultation somewhere, like, um, in a town. Um, and, you know, they make the hours and the dates impossible for people to go to. Um, typically, it takes a long time because especially in the West where it, take, it can take hours to get somewhere. Um, like from a lot of these consultations were taking place in when the Bakken oil boom was happening in Bismarck. Um, while there's a huge uh, MHA tribal nation population there, it does take like a significant amount of time for people to get there. Um, and so that's just another thing to consider whether people were adequately able to voice their um, opinion on things. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and I, before we move out of proper framing, one thing I want to go back to that we were talking about earlier, it, it might be a two-pronged thing. Um, the first thing I want to um, discuss is the use of, um, or maybe the shying away from spirituality, which you, I think you said that a lot of like non-native reporters will come in and see it as exotic and not really touch it in, in a meaningful, engaging way. Um, and then also, like we'll kind of touch on this later, but understanding those boundaries. And what I want to tie that into is um, something uh, that Alistair was saying earlier on how we, when we 
as reporters and editors, how we are writing about these, um, you know, these these ancestral territories like how do what is the language we're using and how are we framing that and so i want to just kind of kick it to alistair first um and then maybe move over to anna just on terms in terms of like the media's coverage of uh you know viewing natural resources and land as more than vehicles for capital as like understanding that these have like cultural significance that extends past like some sort of like oh, this is a piece of land that I like. You know what I mean? Like, how do we explain that to, that this is like something that goes much, much deeper than that to people who are coming from a culture that for centuries has only seen them as something to extract from and to capitalize off of? Or still insult to the black market and then have Finland bring back the <laughs> artifacts years later. Um, yes. Yeah, so I... Um, Again, I just want to know, like, how many of you still receive press releases as news, as a source of information? That's what we discussed last night as well. Right. And I was at a conference in called Continent 19, and industry ex experts were like, press releases don't work. But for us at Bears Ears, I think they do. And I just wanted to know if that, do you guys rely on that? Just so I can, um, if you guys can raise questions, <laughs> our hands, that would be great. Um, just to see, because... I'm always pitching. I'm like, no one's biting, and I don't know if they're going to read this PR or whatever. So internally, we have that issue. But I bring that up because in the way the Salt Lake Tribune, and I feel like they've been a publication that's been a little bit more progressive in their coverage, um, I know like for a long time, and it's an issue that mainstream papers um, often forget. They don't, they don't basically add the native narrative or voice to the to their stories and it was a lot it happens a lot with bears ears because archaeologists archaeologists are the ones who are the main go to when there's like a I want I don't want to say discovery but a find in the landscape and that is often that scientific perspective is often um, preferred over the cultural traditional science perspective and I think the Salt Lake Tribune has done a good job in one article that I'm very happy with that they wrote was called spirituality um, I don't remember the headline but it was from our press release and I just saw the need like these people are not getting it <laughs> they're not getting this like spiritual connection to bears ears and and I'm like okay like how do we explain to the like how do we do this and so I kind of just combined my former journalism skills of writing features or stories and I, I was like we're writing this press release the way I would write a story and so that kind of helped in that regard and this press release um, focused on this find of of a fossil in the Bears Ears region. I think it was like over a year ago now. It was a it's a big I think don't quote me on this, but a big lizard. Um, but as an indigenous person growing up and through all these um, impacts of colonization, there was a point in time where I questioned my identity as an Dinette person, and um, I was trying to connect to these cultural, like, well, fossils are here, dinosaurs are here, like, how come, where, like, because when you're, and it's just growing over my cultural knowledge of being Dine, like, I learned, I was like, well, our, our creation stories say this, there was monsters, and those monsters are fossils and dinosaurs, and so, like, we tried to make that connection to the non-major uh, audience, like, 
this falsifying, while it is considered paleontology, it also has a native connection, and that native connection is obviously in the cultural sites found around Bears Ears. And so I brought in a source in in that story, um, Kevin Madalena, who's Hamas Pueblo, and he has back, background training in paleontology and archaeology and that cultural fossil narrative that he has as a Pueblo man, but also um, our board member, Mark Maryboy, um, who's Dene, and he talked about the cultural connections of our stories to fossils and monsters that slayed and ravaged as well and um, at one point in time. And so I pitched that, and the Tribune picked it up, and they used most of it, but they also, I like the fact that they added the Ute perspective to creation, which is the um, how they were selected by Creator to live in the mountains, um, these mountains around here as well, and so like, it w and then it included like other tribal connections to to the land in a cultural sensitive way, and I felt like that was um, our doing. But it was it was a beautiful piece because I was satisfied as like finally a, a paper like the Salt Lake Tribune kind of understands most of what we're trying to convey when it comes to spirituality around landscapes and particularly when it comes to bears ears. Could you repeat the question? Yes, absolutely. Um, so here, let me just do this. So the question was how to implement into your coverage. Um, when you're discussing um, whether it's, it's rivers or, or a specific mountain or a range of mountains or whatever the um, natural being is, like how do you frame that as more than just like a, a, a vehicle for capital? How do you frame it as more than just, a, a, like how do you introduce that um, cultural significance and write about it as a reporter? Okay. Um, yeah, so I think one thing is is that the term sacred, I think, is one that is sometimes used as shorthand mm -hmm. in, in some publications. It's not really explained, like, in what way is this place sacred or how or all of that, like, beautiful backstory that you just gave in that instance. It's just kind of like, this place is sacred, and then they move on. Um, and so I think really spelling it out and, like, going deeper... Um, because what you what you want is you want the reader to to be able to relate or like understand in some way. You're trying to make sure that people who are reading can like understand why this person cares about this place because it's sacred. And so one way you can do that is by like really sp spelling it out and going deeper. Um, and then also, I think the way that I do it specifically, I mean, I'm non-native, and so I've I choose to not do specifically like cultural spiritual mm -hmm. stories yeah. just and I think that everybody kind of has different boundaries and I guess maybe we're going to talk about boundaries later exactly actually <laughs> but, next so that's a great <laughs> so segue <laughs> but anyway so those are some of my boundaries um but what I do like to do is is like the last story that I did was how the Klamath right or the Klamath River now has rights of personhood mm -hmm. because um, the Yurok tribe uh, passed a resolution in tribal court, and so that's one way that you're you can see their relationship to this river, the Klamath River. Um, 
and it's it's not necessarily I didn't necessarily use the words like spiritual but it was like seeing the river as a being right I mean you're right that story you're talking about I, I remember it, and you're writing about it from a, a legal perspective uh-huh. but you did it in a way that embedded that same understanding of yeah. how the York tribe views the river as like how it, that can translate to a, a legal understanding of how mm-hmm. uh political and uh, legal entities understand that same body of water. So, yeah. absolutely. Um, and so let's let's hit that segue into uh, our next and, and final segment of avoiding stereotypes. Um, now, this should be, this is one we could talk about for a very, very long time. Um, but I, one thing I want to start off um, with you, Kaylin, because you kind of touched on this earlier, was just as a reporter, um, you know, how can you maybe just talk through the process of how to know like which topics aren't yours to tell um it, it, whether you're from somebody from that community or coming into a new tribal community that you might um, not have reported on before stories that are not mine to tell um yeah like stories that maybe aren't for publication in, in general mm-hmm. if there are any out there uh, or if you have any examples or just in general the best practices on how to engage with tribes on how to be respectful about um, reporting on these issues I see yeah well so there's like this nice bingo card that yes. Naja put out <laughs> and it's there's a lot of them I can't name them all but some of them are like warrior imagery um, violence and death, um, poverty porn, um, exoticism of spirituality, like misuse of that kind of representation. Um, I think is those are kind of, if I see a story or if someone comes to me and is like, hey, like another person died of exposure, you know, we need to, you know, make sure people know about this. You know, it's not, it's not the story that I'm trying to tell it's not something I think like if it's something central to being a a trope then that's something that I will not cover um another one of course is like alcoholism um and you know there's you know I don't know those are it's a it's a lie like like you're talking about like you were talking about, um, and honestly, we, I wish we would have gotten some to print, the bingo cards to print out here, because they're extremely instructive. But you can also find those, I think, if you just Google N-A-G-A, or um, J-A, uh, bingo cards, um, that will probably pull up the PDF uh, pretty easily. But it, it's just like, it's a simple tool. It, like, it's a bingo card, but it's like a very easy way to kind of tell whether or not your coverage is kind of gearing itself towards... Um, you know, the stereotyping native peoples. Um, but thank you for that answer. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, I just want to, to maybe like to pick, well, actually, uh, can I pass that down to Alistair for on the same question? And just in terms of how to know which topics, um, as a reporter, um, you should, one, know how to frame, like kind of t- tying back to the uh, framing, but also then how to know which topics are yours and are not yours um, to tell as somebody from outside of a, com- a tribal community. Um, thank you. So I'll put on my former Navajo types, Times hat on. Um, I think some stories that I felt like I wasn't allowed to or I didn't have spiritual clearance, and I always took it from a cultural lens, like I'm not going to always write a story about our ceremonies. I mean, that's what I think a lot of um, what 
the non-major audience wants to hear all the time. So like I, there's the other cultural protocol you have to do to even write some of that information. But uh, even like when it comes to like maybe for instance, the FBI looking like a murder mystery, <laughs> like I, I would take the protocol and like, oh, I don't think I need to go there and write that. Or if there's like a, maybe a Marine celebration at a, cemetery for me I would not write that story because I don't want to acquire the energy of being at the graveyard for instance and those are examples that in which I would prop I would employ my own culture sensitivity and make sure like um, that I have the proper clearances or if I if I don't I then I won't write it and um, I, I think those are cues and uh, there are times where you when I felt like I know the Feral Horse Roundup issues on Navajo was one of the issues that um, I wrote about extensively, um, and I drew on the narrative of of the Diné understanding of horses and how they came to be and why they should not be rounded up or versus where they should be rounded up. And so there was that moral dilemma in which I used like cultural values into to tell that story. And um, even like when I was horses being slaughtered in, in the Navajo Nation, feral horses, I was there and I was like, in that, in that situation, um, there was a bear there. A bear was eating the canvas and it was just really cool because, not that that was cool, but I thought it was cool <laughs> because in Dene Bazaar or Navajo language, the person who was um, the victim to the horse roundup issue like talked to the bear in a in the Navajo language and said, "Grandpa, like this is not today. For you. This is not the time for you to be here and to eat these horses. We're trying to investigate." So like that that little story was like my lead, and I really loved of writing that because that I think you got to be very selective in when to choose what story is best for you, and I just kind of. It just comes with experience as well, and um, those are some of my examples that I can yeah. answer. Yeah, no, no, that was excellent. Thank you. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Here you go, Caleb. Sorry, just to add something really quick. Alistair brought up a really good point about kind of having. I'm. He has an intuitive sense now of like what not to cover. Um, I think like having getting to know the etiquette of when you meet a native person on a tribe. Um, there's different types of ways of behaving and um, just getting to know that. I think also, just like any other people who don't interact with the media that much, um, you kind of need to also let them know you know, some of like how you've been trained, what's on the record, off the record, and if they talk about things that like like sacred burial sites um, or other sacred sites that aren't as well known as bear's ears. Um, sometimes tribes keep them very secret. Um, it's good to know that it's like maybe they're oversharing, maybe they're over-speaking. I should probably not be writing this down and this should probably not make it in my story. Um, and it's always good to be very clear um, and talk with your sources and say like, hey, like, this is that was probably something that I can't write. Um, just letting you know that there are some things that you should keep private from me, or just let me know if something is private, just to kind of let you know help me out 
Um, so it, make sure that I protect you as a source. Um, and that's part of tribal consent with your not just the whole tribe, but respecting that that person comes from a collective of people um, that have stakes in that story as well. Um, really quickly, I wanted to add too. Um, we wanted to. I also want to disclaim too, like indigenous knowledge, like what I just shared, like that is. Um, it's very important. It's like a fact. <laughs> it's it's not creation story. It's not myth. It's not lore. It's not legend. It's not prehistory. And those are banned words in our organization. And we prefer creation narrative over those like false words. And we because I'm not a myth. I'm I went to NYU. I didn't. My all my values are not fake. And so like that's just an example. Like like. You can't say indigenous peoples or cultural lifeways are are wrong, and I like even lifeways is a positive word. I think it's inclusive, um, and I just wanted to add about like our knowledge is collective knowledge as well. It's not like we own it. Alistair owns this knowledge. Like it's all it's years and years of generational knowledge, and so you I don't know how you would frame it in that regard. Like Alistair said this, but I don't know how you would frame it like. Because Alistair knows this, it's it's from years and years of cultural knowledge, not just belonging to him. Absolutely, um, Anna. Do you have anything you want to add to that? Um, I think after that, we'll move into the Q and A session. Um, I think the only thing I wanted to add is that, like, I know sometimes people don't like can't like when like when you were like I wouldn't write a story about alcoholism or something. Like I know that sometimes people are like assigned stories and like at High Country News we just like pitch so we're not really so much assigned which mm-hmm. is kind of a luxury but one thing to think about like if if you're having to cover some of this stuff like a study on diabetes or something like that or like um, something like MMIW like like think about the angle of accountability like why is this still happening in these communities? A lot of the time it's because the federal government isn't doing what it's supposed to do. And so that's kind of one thing to think about as well if, if you find yourself covering these things. Because um, I think that's, that level of accountability is something that like, can always be pushed on more and more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think now we've got about 30 minutes left, so we're going to move into the Q&A session. Um, if you could just uh, raise your hand, and uh, you know, I'll call on you, and, I'll, and I will repeat their question into the mic um, just in case you all don't hear it. So OK, right here. OK, so the question was, um, looking with the referencing to the Naja bingo, bingo card, with the knowledge, if, we, if a reporter knows what they should not write about, what are some things that they should write about? Yes, absolutely. So just to clarify really quick, it's not that you just shouldn't write about these things. It's just that like, if you're writing a story and the whole bingo board is like, you've got a stamp on every single one, you should maybe be like, oh, maybe there's something else there. So it's not just like, don't write about reservations or something like that. Um, no, I, I okay, cool. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify there. Yeah, absolutely. For me, I have, when looking at the bingo card, Vanishing culture and dying language, um, those are things to me that I'm like, in my community, it's not dying or vanishing. <laughs> so that's what I kind of like, like, where's where's this coming from? And so, well, that's what I think. I mean, I believe just because I see it and witness it like daily. And so when it's reported like in mainstream, I'm like, oh, I guess we're dying. <laughs> or I guess my language is vanishing. And so I think there's two other ways to tackle that. I feel like into is, I don't know, just 
do your due diligence and I, not every organization has some of these things <laughs> that we've been be able to create and I, I think um, you also need to make a presence known in those communities to create other stories like other stories will lead to other possibilities and that's what I was pitching to Nick last night yes yeah we went through <laughs> a few of those yeah yeah um, absolutely so uh, thank you for answering that does anybody else have anything to add I guess so. Okay, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, so tribal nations, they, at least the federally recognized ones and some states' ones, like, they have their own tribal governments. Mm -hmm. And transparency and accountability is pretty variable, just like in the United States. So I suggest holding them accountable as well, because um, their tribal members also would love to know certain things that the tribe you know, their leadership is not telling them. Um, so just like you would, there's elections always coming up as well. Um, I know a big issue in Fort Berthold right now is off-reservation voting rights. I'm, I live in Albuquerque. I do not live on or in Fort Berthold. And so I am not able to vote. And I know there's a lot of activism and, you know, push for those sorts of rights too. So there's always angles that you would think of you know, when you cover a city government as well, um, those are always applicable. Um, yeah, I think that, like, I mean, voting rights, the census that's coming up, elections, conservation efforts, like anything having to do with climate change, like indigenous people are doing so much important work right now when it comes to climate change. Um, land back, there's like, like I just did a story earlier this year about 17,000 acres being returned to a tribe. So, and that was through legislation that went through Congress. And so that's how we found out about it is we just got this press release about this legislation. So I feel like there's um, quite a few of- There's a million, billion stories. Yeah. A gajillion. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, maybe a tip could be like, I don't know how you would collaborate with native publications as well, wherever you're at, like go find, go meet the editor, <laughs> go meet the reporters, and I'm sure they can lead you in some way about stories happening in the communities that they know and some of their sources if they want. But I think just collaborating with like established native publications in those communities is a great way to tackle other stories. Because there's beautiful stories out there. Um, and the native stories, I like to say, they just kind of tell themselves like naturally. Yeah. They're always just always beautiful. Yeah. Um, take the next question. Um, here in the back, in the, yeah. No, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, I am pointing to you. <laughs> uh, thank you all very much. All right. I'm going yeah. to repeat the question. Okay. But so the question was um, for Alistair on how, on the significance of uh, reciprocity and then uh, looking for a good example of uh, a story that worked that way. Yeah. Yeah, so there's tons. Um, we have... Um, if you're interested in Bears Ears topics, I have tons I can pitch here. Um, but one of them is our Bears Ears Summer Gathering, and that's kind of our cultural um, event in which we activate on the land, and we let the federal agencies know, like, Bears Ears, because they often forget, well, it's federal land, it's everyone's land, and blah, blah, blah. And so, like, they they have issue with us even being on in the Bears Ears landscape, connecting the way we do. And in that situation, there's tons of reporters that love to come, like National Geographic was there, um, freelance people from North Face, and uh, we did this training with them, and 
I feel at, at Utah Denebekeo, a lot of us, are the media team there, we often engage. Um, so Nick will get this mm -hmm. training before he starts reporting on various topics. Yes. Um, and that's one way we kind of control our narrative is to um, brief the reporters on like, hey, we have this guideline, like look at it before you start pitching stories. Um, it's kind of like our, what we call mandatory for all reporters. And it develops, again, that that um, on the idea of print re reciprocity, a stronger relationship to not only us, but to your sources. But it makes you aware like how to culturally proceed with your source. Um, and in that situation at the Bears Year Summer Gathering, it was it was just annoying because all like during times of prayer, like these pe these non-native journalists and um, videographers and photographers would be like. Um, I don't know if it's I'm kind of rude, but I was just like flipping hats during a prayer. Like, hey, like, look around, look at the etiquette here. Like, take your hat off during a prayer. Um, so I was doing that, and I, um, the a big publication did that, and they were filming, and I was just kind of like putting cameras down, just because like these are times you need to exercise this reciprocity principle and when it come when we when we define it it probably varies it definitely varies by in different tribes but at bears ears it, it includes the ute the Dene, the hopi the zuni and the pueblo um nations in the rio grande valley in new mexico and so we kind of collectively made this document and we, um, when I look at the guideline here, I'm trying to, I don't remember it. I, I know it, but I got to review it right now. Um, but like we, like for instance, we, we recommend when you're coming to this gathering, if you want a deeper story, um, maybe offer your photo photograph of your, of your source. I mean, uh, maybe, I don't know if you have tobacco, like offer that, or maybe even, uh, maybe something you grew in your garden like something of value as you as a storyteller like if you like to offer that as a as an offering to get something back in return and so that's kind of what we um try to establish and i know there's those the professional ethics of journalism don't take anything don't give anything like you're being biased <laughs> um so we try to break down that western framework of that rule and we don't think that you offering this reciprocity is a violation of that rule. <laughs> I mean, that's just the way I see it because it that principle, even as a reporter, worked for me. Like I, to and I realize with the Ute people, they're a little bit private and conservative. And I was writing a, my first piece on Bears Ears as a reporter, and I didn't know this board member but I needed him. He went to talk to me, <laughs> and he and I saw him struggling taking down his horse corral fence, and I was like, and I propositioned him, maybe that was wrong, but like I, I was like, if I help you take down your fence, which you're in, loaded up into your trailer, while you talk to me about Bears Ears and your, the you perspective to Bears Ears, and he obliged, and he gave me what I, I, not I wanted, but like it was very deep, knowledge and that's an example of reciprocity i think more reporters could use instead of just extracting information thank you so much for that yeah um yes right here in the gray hoodie Thanks.
Okay, the question was um, how to work with academics uh, and vet them in a way that leads to um, good and proper uh, reporting uh, on Indian country. And use it, yes, yeah, also using them. Yeah, also using them as sources as well. Um, does anybody want to take that one? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is like like indigenous academics and having those be like number one. Um, in all my stories that I do, all my sources, it's like unless I can't find anybody else or if, if I'm like on a really tight deadline or something, they're always indigenous. Um, um, but in terms of like vetting academics, I'm not really sure because I'm not really in the academic world. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty much the only, that's not super helpful, but did you have other thoughts? Yeah, a little. No, you're, 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 I don't oh, know. Okay. <laughs> 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 Two mics. Um, for me, I guess if I wanted someone like an academic to write, I would treat, I would look at their past work, of course, and check out how they were framing things. Um, I would really ask if, like, if they came to you to pitch a story about indigenous people, it would, I think that would involve a conversation if they were non-native, um, of course, <laughs> the conversation. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think like that would, I think with any sort of, I guess, freelancer and with an editor who they're not, you know, they're testing you out, you would need to test them out and be like, how would you report this? How would you go about it? Who are the sources you would talk to? What is your reporting plan? Um, and, you know, of course, like the bingo card is always great. Um, and the bingo card is not always just like a story about alcoholism or violence, but those can come in the form of like a wall of statistics as well. I always see the same statistics used um, block after block and it, it kind of even takes over the whole story sometimes. Um, but yeah, I would look at their past research, I think um, that would be a good place to start. Great, thank you. Um, uh, I'll go here and then here, so in the blue. Yeah, so the question was, if you um, are a, a national publication or a publication that is, um, you know, quote, parachuting uh, in, into a, a region for a story, um, how do you try to tell that story both to a broad audience while balancing um, the cultural uh, sensitivities that are necessary um, to establish the foundational knowledge um, that undergirds a lot of uh, Indian country reporting? So does anybody want to jump on that one? In other words, we do everything. We probably, over the course of my career, have done all the things that y'all recommended we not do. Right. We, right. we do those. Right. And it's in terms of expedience, that's how we get to mm -hmm. uh, what we need to deliver. Yeah. And I'm wondering suggestions you might have for balancing that in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in terms of like quick fixes, like nothing really comes to mind because then we would all be doing it great and perfect. <laughs> and we wouldn't need this panel. <laughs> we and wouldn't we need would this all panel. Just get free breakfast and get to talk around. Um, so I guess like, um, I don't know how much this helps you, but what comes to mind is something like what High Country News has, which is like an indigenous affairs desk. So that like there would be people who are consistently on this beat, who consistently have that background knowledge. And there will still be some element of parachuting in, right? There's 573 tribes in the United States. So you probably won't hire one person who's 
knows a bunch for every single one. But like, it, I feel like to get to your question, like it's looking at systemic change of the journalism industry to an extent, which isn't super helpful for you. So I'm sorry, <laughs> but that's the first thing that comes to my mind. Um, I like um, the AP reporter Felicia Fonseca. Um, she's very aware as far as like how to culturally pre uh, pre prepare stories for the AP and flag stuff. And I think maybe reaching out to her for some of her um, tools would be great. Um, I know she, she I, f I, I like her reporting um, for the AP. And I think she's very sensitive, and she knows how to insert some of those biomarkers into the reporting. Sorry, what do you mean by like Danette clan systems, or like biographical, like um, like Kaylin is. Is it Mandan Hadatsa and? Yeah, like those those important details matter. Um, I mean, yeah, but like for me as a writer, I would insert those like details just because it helps humanize the story even more. Great. Sorry, just one, one last thing. Okay. It's a tendency I have. <laughs> you mentioned that uh, sacred knowledge. So that sounds like something to avoid putting into a story, and I think kind of feeds into the same question. Yeah, I think like there's every tribe has like, I would say like different levels of what is what is what should remain secret and what should remain within the tribe um, there are some things that are pretty publicly known um, certain types of ceremonies um, but it's it's kind of getting a feel for like the etiquette of course like I think we've talked a lot about etiquette and it's it's kind of knowing like hey like is this something you mentioned this ceremony or this cultural norm you have here is that all right to talk about? Is that all right to report? Is that something that should remain with the tribe? And is that, you should really also ask yourself, like, is that really relevant to my story? Um, is adding that, um, off the top of my head, like, these people do this type of dance and this type of ceremony is done, is that really, is that really necessary? Um, and sometimes, like, you can just be like, "Well, what do you want?" You can ask, like, "What should I say in place of this?" That's still accurate. People still know the stakes of it, um, but it's something that is non-specific. I think they would really appreciate that. So, proactive approach, being proactive instead of reactive, and then publishing your story, and then them coming to you and telling you that. So, just going the extra mile in your reporting. It sounds like is is what you need to do. Exactly, and having someone to be like, like you mentioned clan system, like, hey, I wrote this down about you or this tribe, can you look it over, is it, is it accurate enough, um, or is this appropriate to also report? I think it's not, it's not a bad idea ever to, if, especially if it's like culturally sensitive things, um, or, um, you know, exact spelling, like, spell the goddamn tribe name, right? <laughs> yeah. You know? And don't just say it's a tribe from Washington or of Washington or owned by Washington. Yes. Um, I think that that will go a long way with tr building trust. And if you are able to put yourself first as a human being um, and realize that I am here, I'm asking someone for their story, um, then I think that's going to go a long way uh, with building your sources. 
Um, quickly, I'll add to like I don't know where you part report from in the region, but I would recommend like meeting with like media uh, or maybe native um, experts in in wherever you're at and start having an orientation with them. And that way, you don't when you do parachute in, you don't have to do the damage control later. And just to be, I guess, so to speak, proactive. Yeah. Local reporters um, who've been on the ground, I think it's always great to connect with them um, on whatever beats you parachute into. Um, it's always nice to be like, hey, I'm going to be in the area. Do you want to meet up? Do you want to talk about things? Um, local reporters always appreciate that. Um, great. Let's move on to the next question right here. Okay, the first question was Alistair, just asking how to get the pamphlet um, he's been uh, referencing today. And then also, uh, more broadly to everybody, how to get in contact. Uh, was How to get in contact with... Right, how to get in contact with Native publications um, to uh, further your reporting. Um, yeah, thank you for your question. I do have some. I'm also on another panel on Friday, and I'm going to talk a little bit more of that. I think I have some, like, 50 copies, so I can hand you some of this today. Those who are interested in this document or tool, it is undergoing another revamp and revision, so it's a more truer document, but it's still the basic, like, backbone structure of it is still important. And um, I can, do we just provide you the email list of, like, publications you can yeah, I mean, share with them or? Do it. Naja. Yeah, I think Naja would be the, the sorry. The Native American Journalists Association would probably be your best resource into connecting with specific, um, you know, whether it's tribes or tribal peoples. Uh, I think, er, when, at least in terms of the reporters. And also, like, think of think of tribal newspapers, like any town's newspaper like there's like if you're going I don't know what your reporting is like but if you're like going to a certain place there's probably a tribal newspaper nearby and so kind of search for it that way I'm not sure that Naja has a comprehensive list of every single yeah, tribal newspaper I, I or native sure, owned but, but they'd still be a good resource in general um, because there are there are national publications for sure that are um, native there's Indian Country Today there's Indians.com. Oh, man. Native America Calling. Right, yeah, they're good. Yeah. There's a couple. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I saw a hand in the back. Yep. Absolutely. So the question um, first was whether there are any databases where um, it offers um, access to uh, specific, um, you know, whether it's people who are experts, reporters, or just um, tribal leaders or points of contact. And then also following up with um, trying to find that safe space to ask um, you know, what might be, quote, a, an ignorant question. And, and then also um, how to not be, when kind of what we've talked about on this panel, uh, when we're saying meet with local reporters, um, try to tie them into your coverage. Um, or reporters and photographers and whoever, um, photographers. And um, how did, but if you don't have the funds to do that, how to not be exploitative? So, kind of a three prong question there, but if anybody has um, I'll take anything the first to do, one. okay, cool. So, um, as far as I know, there's no comprehensive like source like 500 women scientists. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Um, High Country News, we have like an internal something like that. I wouldn't qualify as a database because that sounds really intense, but um, what, one thing that we wanted to do with the Tribal Affairs Desk, Indigenous Affairs Desk, is um, 
make sure that it, it wasn't all of those indigenous sources weren't just being siloed into indigenous affairs and so that the people who are covering the north and the south um, are also using those resources. Um, and so, yeah, so going back to the question, though, um, it's something that Tristan, who is my, Tristan Atone, he's my editor, and he leads the Indigenous Affairs Desk. He's also president of the Native American Journalists Association. And so that's something that we've been talking about doing. Um, the thing about that, though, is we would want to get consent from everybody to make sure that we can put them in this public-facing database. And so that kind of turns into, like, a bigger project um, because then we also, like, yeah, it just gets more complicated with doing something like that. So that might be something that eventually comes. Um, but yeah, I, there are a lot of indigenous organizations out there that are really good. Like, I'm not, I guess I shouldn't just start listing them, but <laughs> you can email me later and I can email you a list. <laughs> Did you? Okay. Um, there is, I mean, it's not comprehensive again, but there is a small database um, called Natives Photograph, and it's, um, it's, uh, you know, it's just a database for photojournalists and art photographers who are indigenous of Turtle Island, um, and I'm on it, you can hire me. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, they're all extremely talented and um, we talked about having a point person. They'd be someone that would help you navigate um, your reporting as well. Oh, and the, the I guess the local reporter question. Um, I think from people that I know who are tired of, you know, people who parachute in, or even their regional editors who don't quite know the beat as well as they do, um, they always, they have always appreciated someone being like, hey, can we meet up for coffee? Um, I want to talk about something. And for someone, like, I have a couple friends who cover the immigration beats and who are always going um, across the U.S.-Mexico border. They honestly really appreciate it, um, but I do see, you know, there could be something not quite right, especially if it's... Um, someone who's budgeted like the New York Times and they just will not hire those kinds of local freelancers or things like that. That can definitely be frustrating and I, I see your point. Yeah. I think this is where you could employ the principle of reciprocity. That's just me. But um, I think that you could start reading local publication sources as well, just reading the byline of the reporters just to get a sense of their style, even though you don't want to exploit their knowledge or sources. I think just even getting to read what they're writing about will lead you however it will lead you. And I think that's a good strategy to use. Yeah. Um, do we have? Okay. <laughs> Oh, yes. I wasn't sure if you had a point or anything. So the question was just about um, specifically looking at, at beers, Bears Ear, but then also looking a little bit uh, wider, was how to navigate uh, as, as national publications um, just some of the more uh, intricate and complex feelings within these communities and multiple communities um, on these topics. So does anybody want to take that? Um, um, thank you for your question. Yeah, it is a complex, and even from our end, it's hard to explain that Pueblo narrative when there's um, that historical um, 
relationships with other tribes like Dinana or the you between Dinana and you. And so we like to frame it through healing. We frame it as healing um, these past atrocities, healing the cultural divide, healing. And that's our mission statement at Utah Dinapakea. And it's not like medically hospitalized healing. You're recovering from a surgery. <laughs> it's more like it's healing from tackling historical issues that create the behaviors of of people to, of today and so we frame it to where in this line of work and I think that's where I kind of got frustrated where I was like you know what if these reporters are not getting it I'm going to write it the way I think it should come across and that was that spirituality piece and I feel like everyone every human being has that spiritual connection to a place and I feel like if you can connect on that level on a human level then you can slowly build that I guess foundation to go into different avenues of your reporting, whether it's land management, which is bear's ears, or our work includes traditional foods, like tasting bear's ears through that program, or paleontology, firewood research, or um, different ways that human connect and use the landscape, and that's what we're trying to do. And one issue I had was um, in the conversation, and it's mostly economic, political, economics, and social. I think those are the three paradigms that influence conversation around at least Bears Ears. And I, I feel like it's always that economic argument for us, and we're always trying to dispute it. And we try to amplify it through sustainable development like economies. And I know one story I pitched, I wrote, was, was a cultural story about how um, the people from the Monument Valley area use um, juniper beads as a as a piece of art, but use it for spiritual reasons, but also for economic reasons to and I pitched it to the same one record, <laughs> which is a local paper that is very hard to it's very against the work that we're doing and so it's hard to get them to publish some stories and I, I followed up with the editor I was like how come you didn't write this sustainable piece on how to use um, the landscape in a sustainable but spiritual way and basically his response was like it doesn't fit our audience or the audience doesn't get it and so I was just a little annoyed because I felt like that was like in intentional like he he knew the value of the story but he just didn't want to publish it and unfortunately I think it does come down to the politics of the world the Trumpism that exists and I think um, the Trumpism has actually um, enlightened or elevated everything because I mean, this has always been the stance our state of plight of indigenous peoples but it's just under the Trump microscope that it's really visible absolutely i want to sneak in one more question here in the blue vest and then we're going to that's going to be it yep yeah yep. yeah yeah yes yes <laughs> yeah 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 just really um quickly the question was how to cover stories at the meeting point of indigenous um, and western values the the idea of mastery uh versus stewardship over na um, nature and then um if we could just keep whoever answers we'll keep this um pretty brief but yeah I was just saying, I like the way Indi um, High Country News does that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, does that mean I have to answer? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, kind of like what I said earlier, I think that we come at it almost like more from the indigenous perspective because like almost all of, like we find indigenous sources who are scientists. And so it's kind of like, that's like the full meal deal right there. It's not like you're like, over here we have, and over here we have, which is like a flaw that I see a lot. It's like, it's like 
putting them against each other when that's really not like the kind of framing that we want to see in the stories that we do because I think that you're right that it's like kind of all wrapped up and there is a meeting point and so we try to do that through our sourcing and our framing as much as possible absolutely well I want to thank all of you for coming out this morning um, I want to thank the SCJ for granting us the the space this morning to have this wonderful conversation and then finally uh, a round of applause for our panelists who absolutely crushed it thank you guys so much um, I uh, yeah I think there's a coffee break scheduled now and then we will keep going so I know everybody needs it thank y'all again